0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and to share a portion from God's Word together. I don't think it's uh, it's strange, um, and strange to you at least, that things have changed over the last year, two years. Our society has changed. Our government has changed. Our how we interact together has changed. Everything seems to be different than it used to be. I also think that during this past year, two years, I've heard more people be critical. Could it be? Have you heard that too? More people be critical about things, uh, complaining about things, griping about things, just not happy with how things are. People might say, I can't believe our government officials, if I was there, I would do such and such. Or something like, our schools are really in bad shape, someone should do something about it. Or perhaps it even gets into our church and someone may say, well, what this church needs is, and you can fill in the blank. So what kind of person says things like that? Well, people who are gripers, people who are complainers, self-proclaimed prophets, and maybe armchair quarterbacks, people who have an opinion about things. People who always complain about something but don't lift a hand to solve the problem becomes a concern. Do you know someone like that, that they're always complaining but not helping? That they're always saying something negative but not stepping up and helping? That they're always on the On on the complaining and griping side and you say oh that's enough of that why don't you step up and do something it's okay to have an opinion but if you do nothing but complain gripe and point finger at a problem and do nothing you are part of the problem not part of the solution now I know that there are things that we become concerned about and some things we can do nothing about other than pray of course But sometimes our hands are tied about given situations. But our mindset, our attitude becomes one of griping. Well, today we're going to look at a man who gets things done. A man who makes himself available to carry out God's mission. A man who walks with his God and recognizes God's authority over every situation. Nehemiah sets the bar for how we should respond to a challenging situation, a situation that we don't particularly like about or he doesn't particularly like about, but he steps up and handles it. Well, who is this Nehemiah that we're talking about? And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 in a little while, but we need to look back a little bit into history to figure out who is Nehemiah. So let's just step back for a few moments, And consider, who is this man? And we're going to begin looking at that little bit of history as we look at the book of Exodus. And the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years until God called them out under the leadership of Moses. That's where we begin this little history. And we know that story from the book of Exodus. Eventually, they were allowed to enter the land God had promised them called Canaan. And they were happy about that. But hundreds of years passed during which the nation experienced judges, struggles, faithlessness, and wrestling with God. They were not good years. Their their, their relationship with their God was volatile. The high point of of Israel's history came when David, a godly king, was called to sit on the throne. For 40 years, David experienced the nation, led the nation in both breath and influence and knowledge of God. But things went downhill from there. After his son, King Solomon, died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes and was referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom had two tribes and was referred to as Judah. Because of their disobedience, the Assyrians conquered Israel and the ten tribes were scattered around and became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Bear with me a little bit more history. Even though the southern tribes saw all this happen, they too continued to rebel against God. And in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians' army captured the Jews. Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls were knocked down, and the temple was burned. The people were deported and were forced into slavery again. It must have been a traumatic thing for the Jews to see death and destruction and then be forced to leave their homeland and travel over a thousand miles to a foreign country. Many of God's prophets predicted that this captivity would not destroy the Israelites. It would eventually end and the people would be allowed to go back home again. God did not forsake his people. And in 559 BC, he allowed the Persians to take over from the Babylonians. And he moved King Cyrus to make a decree to let some of the Jews return back to Jerusalem. And in three stages, over about 100 years, they were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to to discover the city was still demolished and desolate. Living there was dangerous and difficult and sorrowful. But 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah and began rebuilding the temple. That's a good thing, right? But unfortunately, they got discouraged and quit. God then sent them prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to finish the project. Ezra was also sent to help restore their spiritual fervor. Uh, Here we come to Nebuchadnezzar. In 444 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar tells his story in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. By now, Persia had repa- replaced Babylon and the region's great power and the Persians ruled with a, great different, with, with a very different means of control. They committed, the commitment of the Persians was to resettle captured people in their own native lands. Conquered peoples could act with a degree of autonomy as long as they supported the state and paid their taxes. Well, the story of Nehemiah is important because we begin to see God fulfilling his promises to restore Israel once again. Let's read from Nehemiah chapter 1. In the books, in the Bibles before you, it's on page 342. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is writing this, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace, the walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard this, these things, I sat down and wept. <clears throat> for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'll just stop for a moment and think about this. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, or Nehemiah thinking these walls are broken, the gates are burned, but his reaction, is it a little excessive? He's mourning. He's, he's crying. He went into fasting because of these walls. Well, although the Jews completed the temple in 516 B.C., which we think that would have been enough, the city walls remained in shambles for over 70 years. But these walls, the walls around Jerusalem, the walls around the temple represented power, protection, and beauty to the city of Jerusalem. They were also needed to protect the temple from attack and to ensure the continuity of worship. God put the desire to rebuild the walls in Nehemiah's heart, giving him a vision for the work. These walls were important. Ezra had gone back before and helped restore the spiritual fervor of the people, but God put upon the heart of Nehemiah to be a builder to restore the walls and the gates. Let's continue. And he said to God, and he begins his prayer, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to, the, in, to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you had gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them back to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. God is putting upon Nehemiah a challenge that he wasn't quite ready for. But here it was. He was ready to take on this challenge. He had a rather cushy job. He was working for King Artaxerxes. He was taking care of of the king. He had a good living. He got paid well. He had a cushy job. He was a cupbearer. You know what a cupbearer does? He tests the wine that's given to the king. And if it has poison in it, guess what happens to Nehemiah? Now, this could be a cushy job until that happens. Now, if you know what, what it means to, um, um, for your company to pay for workman's compensation, it's based on how serious and how dangerous the job is, right? Now, I don't know what king Artaxerxes had to pay for this, but Nehemiah was in a very, very difficult situation. He had to test that wine each time it went to the king. But Nehemiah meets up with his brother Hananiah, and he asks the question, what happened to that remnant? What happened to the Jews in Jerusalem? But why was Nehemiah concerned about what was happening back in Jerusalem when he had such a cushy job? This is an important starting point. It's easy for us to stay uninvolved and unaware. Some of us don't want to even think about stuff that's going on in our own lives, much less take the time to investigate what is happening in the lives of others. Even though Nehemiah knew that his ancestors had been led away, in chains when Babylonia destroyed it. He was concerned about what was happening. And as he thought on Jerusalem, he listened to the report that the survivors were in great trouble and disgrace, that the wall of Jerusalem was in shambles and that its gates had been burned with fire. As he tried to imagine the shame in the city of David, he could barely stand it. The phrase, great trouble meant that these people had broken down and were falling to pieces. Three words summarized the bad news. There was a remnant, and they were in ruin and reproach. Nehemiah was broken over the complacency of the people of Jerusalem. They were living in ruins, and they accepted it. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about it. Friends, nothing is ever going to change in your life, in the life of the church, or for that matter, our country or our nation, until we become concerned about it. When Nehemiah heard this report, he hit the ground and began to weep. And we see in verse 4, he bemoaned and lamented, much like Jesus did when he cried out in painful tears when he observed the hard hearts of those people in Jerusalem. He also fasted. And in the Old Testament, fasting was only required once a year. But here we see Nehemiah fasting, refraining from food for several days. In fact, we know from comparing the different dates in the book that he wept, fasted, and prayed for four months. These are all signs of humility and show his deep concern for the problem. Perhaps you're thinking about something in your own life that needs attention. Nehemiah sees these walls and he hears about these walls and they need attention. And he becomes concerned about them and he reacts to it. And perhaps there's something in your own life that needs attention. Do you need some rebuilding? Are your defenses broken down such that you are allowing some practices and sins To control your life. Before you can ask God to rebuild, you must first become concerned about the problem. But what does God want us to know about Nehemiah's initial reaction to what he hears? What is the message that we're hearing here? Because, the first is because God cares for us, we must care for others. Second, when God puts a challenge before us, we need to respond. Last week, Pastor Andy asked us to take some business cards and invite six people this week. That was a challenge he put before you. But the third part of this concern is that God plans on using us to carry out his work. We see in Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Ephesians 3:20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We know that God will use his people to carry out his plan. And he put upon Nehemiah the challenge to carry out a difficult task. But what are you being challenged to do today? Are you sitting back and just griping or complaining, or are you looking at a challenge and taking it? It is easy to stay in our own little world and think others will take care of the problems that need attention. But perhaps God is calling you to help someone get to the hospital. Maybe he's helping, challenging you to help someone buy some groceries. Or perhaps it's a bigger challenge like our church faces. How do we bring the gospel to to our community during a pandemic? How to fill the numerous church volunteer positions that need filling each year right here? The challenge remains. We simply have to say, God, I'm available. Show me. How you will carry out your mission through me. That is what Nehemiah did. He made himself available. But before he moved beyond that challenge, he prayed. And we read his prayer. And let's look at that together in verses 5 through 10. He begins with adoration. After Nehemiah becomes concerned, he next expresses his conviction of God's character. In verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. Nehemiah called God Lord. He recognized the Lord as his master. He refers to himself as God's servant. He then refers to his Lord as the God of heaven. He acknowledges that his God was beyond the earthly realm and above all other gods. He next refers to him as a great and awesome. God deserves to be honored, revered, and feared by all because of who he is. Finally, Nehemiah describes God as the one who keeps his covenant of love. God is truthful, faithful, and can be trusted. He begins his prayer with adoration. He doesn't begin by complaining about all These these people who went back to Jerusalem, they're not even building the walls, God. No, he begins by praising God and giving him adoration. Nehemiah's boss, the king, was the greatest and mightiest on earth. But compared to God, Artaxerxes was nothing. Nehemiah was in Susa, and his concern is in far-off Jerusalem. Both cities, one rich, the other poor, one strong, the other weak, One proud, the other broken, were like tiny specks of dust under the vast canopy of God's heaven. When we go to God in prayer, things get put into their proper perspective. Because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that God was not only able, but also willing to respond to his prayer. But in verse 6, he goes on in his prayer, And what does he do next? He begins with adoration. But then in verse 6, he goes to confession. But he also knew that he did not deserve to have God treat him favorably. That's why the next phrase of his prayer is a confession of sin. Like Job, his encounter with an awesome God brings him to the place of repentance and confession. We read in Job 42, 5 and 6, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes had seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. And becoming concerned about the problem and expressing his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah is now moved to admit his sin and the sins of his people. Verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess The sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's one thing to be concerned and to even have a firm conviction of who God is. It's another thing to be ready to confess our sins. Many of us have never got that far. We might feel bad about our sins and know that we're doing something wrong, but perhaps we've never got to the point like Nehemiah and said, God, I recognize I have sinned. Nehemiah boldly asked God to hear his prayer, which literally means to hear intelligently with great attention what he is saying. God, listen to me. I have sinned. Three key ingredients to this prayer of confession. First was intensity. Overwhelmed by concern about sin and and awe of God's character, Nehemiah gave himself to prolonged petition and intercession. He prayed day and night, spending every moment of time in God's presence. This was very similar from Psalm 88, verse 1, where we read, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. It was intense. But secondly, it was honest. Nehemiah made no attempt, no excuse for the Israelites of their sin and actually owned his part and their guilt as well. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and present failure. And he knew that he was not exempt from blame. Notice that he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites including myself, we have acted very wickedly. We have not obeyed. This is remarkable to me. because It would have been easy for Nehemiah to look back and blame the ancestors, but instead he looked within and blamed himself. And Nehemiah wasn't even there. He wasn't part of that disobedience initially, but he recognizes his forefathers and his history says, yes, we have disobeyed. We have sinned against you. And the third part of this prayer of confession was urgency. Nehemiah recognized that his sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but is also a defiant act of aggressive personal rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they have acted wickedly. He didn't try to candy coat it. He owned it up, and he called it what it was. Our sins cannot be hidden. The story is told about some Boeing employees who decided to steal a life raft from one of the 747s that they were working on. They were successful in getting it out of the plant, but they forgot one thing. The raft comes with an emergency locator that is automatically activated when the raft is inflated. So when they took the raft out on the river, they were quite surprised by the Coast Guard helicopter honing in on their emergency locator. Trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. He knows all of them. and In Numbers 32, 23, he reminds us, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Friends, we need to recognize that all our sin those things that we have done, blatantly done or carelessly committed, or those things that we have left undone must be identified and then confessed, just like Nehemiah did. The fourth part of his prayer is thanksgiving for God's promises. While Nehemiah spends time in broken confession, he doesn't wallow in prolonged introspection, examination of his failures and those of his brothers and sisters. He owns what he did wrong, and then he remembers quickly, expresses confidence, And God's promises. In verses 8 to 10 he says, remember the instruction, now here's Nehemiah reminding God of what he did. I think God knew, but remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. In this part of his prayer, Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses about the danger of Israel's apostasy and the promise of divine mercy. His words are skillful mosaic of great Old Testament warnings and promises with quotes from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Kings. What was the promise Nehemiah was getting at? Well, it was twofold. First, it was if Israel disobeyed, they would be sent to a foreign land. Well, that had happened. But second part was when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. They were still waiting for that to be fulfilled in its entirety. So Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part of it is true. We've disobeyed and we were in in captivity. But Lord, you've made a promise to bring us back home and protect us there. And that has not happened completely yet. And I'm claiming your promise that you'll make it happen. Someone has calculated that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And the better we know the word of God, the better we'll be able to to pray with confidence in God's promises. And 1 John 5, verse 14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. We know God's word is full of promises. Perhaps you've received this little book called Bible Promises for You. We've handed this out in our welcome bags. If you haven't received one, I invite you to pick one up from the information table today, it's full of promises that God gives his people. And God says, claim those promises, for you are my people. Promises like he mentions in Malachi verse 3, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Verses often used as as God's people are challenged to give, to tithe of what God has given them. God says, do that and watch my promise be fulfilled. And then Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not in your own understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and he will make her path straight. Are you as confident of God's promises as Nehemiah was? If God said it in his word, you can believe it and claim it. Nehemiah knew God would keep his covenant of love with his people. He also knew that even though God did not did not need his help, he was ready to commit and to get involved, which is the fifth part of his prayer. It was a commitment to serve. Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer? His concern about the problem led him to brokenness. While he was weeping and fasting, he expressed his conviction about God's character. As he focused on the greatness and awesomeness of his holy God, he was quickly reminded of his own wickedness and therefore cried out in confession. After owning his role in, in the nation's depravity, he prayed boldly with confidence in God's promises. This then leads him to a commitment to get involved. We see in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. He had to go to the king and, and ask permission to go back to Jerusalem to help restore the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. It has been said that this prayer is not getting man's will done here, done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. However, for God's will to be done on earth, he needs people to be available for him to use. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and his vision of what needed to be done became clearer. He didn't pray for God to send someone else. He simply said, here am I, send me. He knew that he would have to approach the king and request a three-year leave of absence. And so, ask God for success. But who controls the king's heart? The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like the watercourse where he pleases. Someone has said that the key word in this, in this book is the word so, which occurs 32 different times. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation, is moved to concern, and so is compelled to action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we are willing to to make a commitment to get involved. Martin Luther prayed, pray as if everything depends on you, on God, then work as if everything depends on you. Nehemiah's prayer echoes a long-used prayer pattern called ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, seeking God's help in what you're carrying out. Remember that. Nehemiah's prayer is an example for us when we are challenged. Everyone here is challenged, if you're a follower of Christ, to do his work. It's how we react to it that makes the difference. And if God is challenging you to do something, I encourage you to pray and seek God's help little story, in Yorkshire, England, during the early 1800s, two sons were born to a family named Taylor. The older one set out to make a name for himself by entering Parliament and gaining public prestige, but the younger son chose to give his life to Christ. He committed his life in serving God, confidently, unconditionally, and wholeheartedly. With that commitment, Hudson Taylor turn his face toward China in obscurity. As a result, he is known and honored on every continent as a faithful missionary and the founder of China Inland Mission, now known as Overseas Missionary Fellowship. For the other son, however, there is no lasting monument. When you look in the encyclopedia to see what the other son has done, you find these words. The brother of Hudson Taylor. Let's pray. Father, um, Nehemiah is challenged. You put upon his heart a concern. You put upon his heart a burden. In spite of where he was and what he was doing, he went to you in prayer, praying, adoration, confession, seeking your help and guidance, and being ready to serve. Lord, may that be our example as you challenge us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.